Uh, we're going to be opening the Bible today to Luke chapter 9. Uh, this week, I was in a small coffee shop in a small town, and I was sitting there reading my Bible. I had two of my kids with me, and I was just kind of doing my morning quiet time sitting there reading my Bible, and something really, really strange happened to me. Uh, I was reading it, and I struck up a conversation with the guy nearby. He said, hey, is that a Bible you're reading? I said, why, it sure is. And so we got talking about some things, and we started talking about the Lord and just doing different things. And then he did something that's really rare for me. He handed me, I saw him writing something on a little business card, and he handed me this card, and he gave me something for nothing. Now, that's rare, right? He, his name was Sam, and he owns this place. Uh, on his business card, it says Sam the Barber. So on the back, it said free introductory haircut from Sam the Barber. Now, I knew that reading my Bible had some eternal rewards, but evidently, there might be a free haircut in it for you, too. So just try it out. I've never had that happen here in San Jose, but evidently in small towns in gold country, this sort of thing happens. Normally, if someone hands you their card and they are offering you something, what does that mean? They want something back, right? They're selling you something. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is how you know business works and life works. But we are trained, are we not, that when someone is offering a good or a service... We are trained to say this in our minds. Yeah, but well, what's the catch, right? What's in it for you? Why on earth would you offer this to me? Uh, this can't be something for nothing. Well, I'm here to tell you that once in a great while, you get a little card from Sam the Barber, and it is something for nothing, but most often it's not. We're driving home yesterday, and right near Interstate 5 and Highway 120 is this fantastic billboard. We're driving along, and I nudge my wife, and I say, look at that billboard, and here's what it says. It's, it says, it's a giant billboard off to the right, and it says, the children's dental fun zone. And on the children's dental fun zone, it's all written in brightly colored letters. Everyone on the billboard is having an absolute blast. It looks like Chuck E. Cheese, you know. And I thought, now that's marketing. The children's dental fun Mommy, can we go to the dentist? That was the, that was the motive behind that. Some of you might be raising little salespeople. I even noticed this week as I was kind of thinking about this message that anytime my kids want something, trained into them is like a master's degree in salesmanship. I mean, they start working. They know which parent is soft on sugar cereal. They know which one is not. They know just how hard to press. And they've been learning from the time they were born. So anyone else raising salesmen and, and, and women? Is, am I alone? Okay, good. I, I feel a little better that, that that's not just me. I bring all of this up to introduce this idea. What happens when all of this consumerism and kind of marketing seeps into our spirituality? What happens when this mindset is dished out of something for nothing, but really there's something in it for me, the salesman, and what is it when people are receiving it and they're kind of, they're kind of at a stance saying, wait a minute, what's the catch? What happens is this. Uh, all through history, the church has fought to remain pure to the doctrine that God gave her, the church. And they've battled heresy, which is taking the sound doctrine, the truth, and veering off from it. So what happens when this seeps into our spirituality is heresy and false gospels, false saviors, a false hope. I might call it Christianity light. Now, Christianity Light is really appealing because Christianity Light is easier. Hey, come and follow Jesus, and it's just that easy. 
It's, it's easier, but Christianity light is also deadly because it's not what Jesus taught. And this morning, uh, I want to do what Jesus did. Jesus didn't tickle ears. Uh, in fact, his teaching infuriated people so much that, that it, actually, uh, it actually, it was very easy for the mob to kind of turn on him and be shouting of what we celebrated a few days ago on Good Friday, which was crucify him. And so I don't want to entertain you this morning, uh, and I also don't want to infuriate you this morning. Neither of those is my goal. I simply want to show you what Jesus taught. And I want to show you what Jesus taught right from the Bible. Um, and I want to say up front, I'm not here to sell you on anything. And I hope that this morning you won't receive this with kind of our guarded American sense of, yeah, but what's the catch? I want to try to lay out for you some things Jesus said and begin the conversation that way. Um, all right, so Luke chapter 9, verse 22 says this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is Jesus talking with his disciples. It's fairly early on in his ministry. It's not right near the end. So he's actually telling them at this point, hey, keep this under wraps for right now. But in one simple verse, that's the Easter story. You want to know what the Easter story is? Here it is, condensed in one short verse. Now, in case you didn't catch it, the Easter story is not really a cute, warm, and fuzzy story, right? I mean, that's not a cute, warm, fuzzy story. Christmas is a little bit of an easier sell with that, right? I mean, you've got swaddling clothes. You've at least got a baby as the centerpiece. That's, that's pretty easy, right, to kind of get feeling warm about and, and excited about. But the Easter story, I mean, this is a condensed version, but... But if you were to read the Gospels, the bulk of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which talk about Jesus' life, center on the last week of his life because of the centrality and the importance of what went on there. That's why Christian churches have crosses hanging in their midst, is to say this is vastly important. And as you read about the last week, there's alarming evening speeches over a meal. There's a lynch mob arresting Jesus. There's accusation and argument and violence. There's blood and there's torture and there's death. And there's the early morning discovery of the empty tomb. That's the Easter story condensed for us here by Jesus' own mouth of what's about to take place in his life. Now, you see as a marketer why that's hard to market as a warm fuzzy. Christianity light doesn't work so well with the Easter story. I think that's why marketers have gone with uh, pastels, uh, flowers, um, cute bunnies. Like that's easier to sell, right, than anything having to do with the historical uh, understanding of what we celebrate at Easter time. I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that we can't take Easter and make it kind of uh, Splenda version, right? Where it's kind of sweet and we kind of feel good about it. It's very difficult to do that with the Easter story, and I think that's a great thing. Now, I just mentioned from Jesus' own mouth, resurrection from the dead. Maybe you're sitting here as a result of a piece of paper that was, that was placed on your doorstep with the words, hard to believe on it. And so, welcome. You're one of our neighbors. We walked our neighborhood this last week, 
and, and, just, and just let our neighbors and just hand them out and, and pass them out. The whole thrust behind that is this. I hope you find what was just read really hard to believe. It means that you're listening, first of all, so thank you. Uh, but, but secondly, it means that you're, uh, you're using your God-given faculties of logic, deduction, and reason. Resurrection from the dead doesn't just happen, right? If you are finding resurrection from the dead and the prediction Jesus just made about himself of what was going to take place and what Christians around the world this morning are celebrating, which is that he did in fact bodily rise from the dead, you find that a struggle, it means that you're not alone. It means that from day one, the disciples and opponents of Jesus Christ found this very hard to believe. And I just put out one caution before we move forward. Can I just say this? If you're finding this hard to believe, don't just check it off as, therefore it must be a myth. Therefore it must not possibly be true. I want to point to two events in history that will kind of reset our brains to say, wow, what we didn't think was possible actually is possible. Unbelievably so. Just because it's hard to believe doesn't make it untrue. The Holocaust. Pre-Holocaust, you would never in your wildest imagination, uh, envision that kind of evil, systematic evil, on a widespread level, being able to be carried out in what, at the time, was modern society, right? On September 10th uh, of 2001, you would not have believed, had you been watching one of the many action films of the day, that something like that was going to take place in New York City the following day. Your brain just wouldn't even be able to grasp it. That would be hard to believe. Hard to believe doesn't necessarily mean false. Okay? So let me just throw this out. Resurrection from the dead is hard to believe. Acknowledge that and begin the process of discovery to say, uh, is this credible or not? Now, uh, right now what's happening, whether you realize it or not, is you're sizing me up. You're saying, do I even believe this guy? Why should I believe this guy? What you're doing is common to something that all of us do every single day. You consider the messenger. You consider the source of something. If you were to hear, hey, there's free haircuts being given out by Sam the barber at the coffee shop, but you have to be reading your Bible, right? You would hear that and go, my hair's really long and needs a haircut, and I don't have much money. I want this, but I'm going to check this out. Is it worth me going down to the barber shop, right, to see if that's true? You're going to consider the source. What I want to do just very briefly is this. I want to consider the source of where we just read this from. Someone wrote this down. These words of Jesus were written down by a human being. Okay? So Luke is where we're reading from. Luke chapter 9. Secular historians and believers in Jesus Christ agree on something with Luke. Luke and his account of Jesus is an incredible piece of ancient literature. So whether you're a believer in the resurrection or whether you're not, across the board, people who study such things say Luke was a top-notch historian. A couple things about Luke. One is that he was a doctor. Luke, by profession, was a doctor. So he has a mindset that is wanting to go after facts, and he has an orderly mindset. If you were to go to the early part of Luke, you would see in verse 3 that he sets out to write an orderly account. 
for this guy named Theophilus. It's kind of a benefactor that he's writing to say, here are the things that are being accomplished among us these days. I set out to write something accurate and orderly so that you could understand it and see it. Finally, it says this, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This is Luke setting up what he's doing early on in his gospel. What you can't do with the gospel of Luke is just dismiss him as saying, well, he was just a guy writing a children's story about Easter. That's not what he set out to do. Luke is a serious person writing down the truth because he's compelled to do so. I would believe, and I would say, because the Bible testifies to this, that he's under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit to write down and preserve what Jesus said. He wrote a second book called the Book of Acts. It's kind of uh, part two. And, and this is something uh, that nails the truth of this. It says this, talking about Jesus. To these, to these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. Those four words, by many convincing proofs, is showing that resurrection is difficult to believe no matter what age you were born in, no matter what location you were born. This is not normal. This is supernatural. And so Luke is saying, I want to show you these things. By many convincing proofs, he showed himself alive. Now, this morning is not so much about getting into those many convincing proofs. That's a well-worthwhile exercise. In fact, I'm going to be at the back table. I would love to hand you one of those books as our free gift that will just kind of get you started in the conversation if you want to begin to say, what is it that this resurrection is all about? Is there any credibility to this whatsoever? That book is kind of a great uh, place to get you started. What I want to do is focus on the rest of Jesus' words here where he summarizes what goes on at Easter and what we celebrate today uh, and, and goes on with some important words. Uh, any, any hockey fans in here? Any Sharks fans, particularly? I don't really care if you like hockey. I care if you like the Sharks, okay? Um, any beards? I see one beard coming in. All right, all right. Um, this isn't fear the beard. Don't get this crossed. That's something totally different, okay? A playoff beard. Um, how important is it for the Sharks to make the playoffs? How important is it for a team to make the playoffs? Pretty important, Right? I mean, the whole season is building toward making the playoffs. If you don't make the playoffs, golf is fun, but watching hockey on TV and not being in the playoffs is a huge bummer, okay? Now, how important is game one of the playoffs? It is the single most important game of the entire season, right? Now, it just so happens the Sharks trounced the Kings in game one. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, that's good news. That's good news, kind of small letters on today. But, but, but here's the thing. Now, how important is game two for the San Jose Sharks? Don't you see that it becomes the most important game of the season? If the Sharks were to make it all the way into fourth round of the playoffs, don't you see that game three of the fourth round of the playoffs is the single most important game of the season? Whereas just a few weeks ago, just making the playoffs was a really big deal, and round two, game seven, was massive. Here's why I bring that up. So too, for the life of a disciple, is that point of belief. The point of belief is massively important in the life of a disciple of Jesus. It's that point at which I say, I don't have all of the answers figured out yet, but I'm placing my faith, I'm placing my trust in this Jesus. 
That's massively important. That's like making the playoffs. But if it stays at just belief, then just like hockey, if you just make the playoffs and you go, phew, I made it, you're misunderstanding uh, what's being called of you. If you have your Bible still open, um, I want you to see this. Jesus summarizes all that we celebrate at Easter in a few short words, um, but, but his prediction is followed up by an equally powerful summary of the entire Christian life. Okay? Here it is in verse 23. It says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now Jesus said many, many difficult things, and this was certainly one of them. He just said to his disciples, these people who left everything to follow him, that said, I'm going to be abused, mistreated, put to death, and I'm going to rise again from the dead. Now, if any of you would come after me, I'm inviting you, follow me, come and die. That's essentially the invitation of Jesus. Those are some hard sayings. Those are hard words to swallow. The invitation of Jesus is a call to discipleship, not just faith alone. Or to, to, to put it a different way, it's faith and obedience. It's faith and following him. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, think Christianity light in your mind for a moment. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not enough to make a profession of faith. Oh yeah, I've trusted in Christ. Five years ago, I made a profession of faith. I said a prayer. I walked an aisle. I even filled out a card. That's important. Believe me. But what you do with that in following, faith and following, becomes the next most important thing. And let me take what Jesus just said as a summary of the Christian life and, and break this down uh, for us. The first thing he says is to deny yourself. Jesus commands us to deny the self. Now, all of us are born with something. It's called opposite of denying yourself. What you and I tend to do by nature is coddle the self, care for the self, nurture the self, promote the self, protect the self. Right? I mean, that's just what we're born with. And now Jesus is coming along and saying, deny yourself. What is he talking about with that? Some really, really strange teachings have occurred over the centuries under the banner of Christianity as to what denying yourself means. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Uh, if, you, if not, just listen carefully. Here's what this does not mean. This does not mean developing a weak, non-assertive, false, humble persona. Some people think that becoming a Christian means I have to be sugary sweet and strip myself of all that I am. That, that must be what it means to deny myself. God made you the way that you are on purpose. And people who teach that denying yourself means that you're supposed to fit in like a lemming into this box and look somehow sugary sweet and never confront and never, and never be opinionated and, and, just, and just do these things... Uh, it doesn't understand the scriptures and doesn't follow Jesus. Non-confrontational, no opinions, wimpy. Being nice and humble at the expense of conviction and truth. This is not God's will. 
That is not what it means to deny yourself. Think about this. The false, humble person is the one who's always making a big show of how unworthy they are, um, of how self-denying they are. And it's really subtle, but don't you see that that's just a form of pride? It's still all about them. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So denying yourself is not about somehow putting on this, this persona. Jesus wasn't like this. He's the one we're following. St. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, certainly wasn't like this. And he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Later on, Jesus would call the disciples um, to shrewdness, to courage, to be resolute in the face of evil, to resist evil, to defend orphans and widows, to go up against bullies. That takes conviction. That takes opinion. That takes resolve. If your idea of a Christian is that you're supposed to lay down and be a doormat, you've got a mistaken view of Christianity. If you've got a view of Christianity that says, I'm going to willingly lay my life down as a servant for others in honor of the one I serve named Jesus, now you're starting to get a clear picture of what it looks like to deny yourself. So what does it mean? Uh, What does it also not mean? It also doesn't mean this. Refusing certain pleasures in an effort to pay back God for sins. Ephesians 2 says this, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Our church just walked through the book of Galatians. The whole book of Galatians is talking about the fact that you can't do anything to earn God's grace. By definition, grace is a gift. It's freely and undeservedly given. It only has to be received. In these two statements lie some of the vast what I believe is error in, in false Christianity, in what people are taking the gospel and misconstruing it into something twisted and, and not what it ever was intended to be. Those who view following Jesus like this, of self-denial, uh, no parties, no ice cream, uh, no smiling, and certainly no laughter, they, they, they just know nothing of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laughed. In fact, if you just give kind of a cursory reading of the Gospels, you realize Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He must have been around some parties to be accused of that. Does that make sense? So so to think of Christ this way and to think of what it means to be a Christian this way is off base. Here's what it does mean. It means that we turn from our old life. Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In just a few moments, we get the pleasure of witnessing a baptism here on Easter Sunday morning. Beautiful. Part of what baptism does is mimics. It's a drama showing that you've died with Christ. Going down under the water is dying with Christ and that you then raise to newness of life. It's a drama of an inward reality that's already gone on in the life of the believer. We are now living to please Christ alone and not ourselves. Now, as subjects of the great king, what you do is you resign your job of building your own earthly kingdom, which most of us, pre-Christian, spent a lifetime perfecting. 
And if we're honest, spend a lifetime not doing the best job at it. We're not great CEOs of our own lives. Jesus certainly didn't soft sell uh, self-denial. There's a story of him uh, being approached by this rich young ruler. We don't know much else about him, but he approaches him, um, and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting, because Jesus doesn't say, oh, we got one, we got a convert, quick, make an easy decision, uh, let's play some music, throw off the confetti, and let's get him before he changes his mind. That's a salesman. I don't want any conversions like that this morning. There's no confetti hidden anywhere in the building. Okay, We are not going to go that route. Instead, it's interesting what Jesus does. With utter truth and with grace that just drips out of his pores, here's what he does. He actually confronts the rich young ruler with who his real God is that he's serving, which is material possessions and stuff. So the guy comes with his list of things that he does to to earn eternal life in his mind. And Jesus redirects his attention and says this, hey, there's only one thing that you lack. He doesn't say this, but never mind that you actually haven't fulfilled the law as good as you think you have. But never mind all that. There's just one thing you lack. I'm sure the guy whipped out his day planner. He's like, let's hear it. Here it is. Go and sell all your possessions and give it away. What happens to the young man? It says he goes away sad. He's disheartened at this. Why? He wanted Christianity light. He wants to keep his stuff. He doesn't want to give it away to the poor. He's, he's spent a lifetime accumulating this. That's where his hope lies. That's where his happiness lies. What Jesus wanted to do was say, I want to tear down your paper God that won't save you. That's a terrible foundation to build your happiness on. I want to offer you, I want to show you riches that last forever. And the young man went away sad because he wasn't ready yet to place his faith in Christ. All right. The next words of Jesus uh, clarify and intensify what he means. He says, take up your cross. People misuse this all the time uh, in, in these sorts of ways. Oh, it's just my cross to bear. What they're talking about is their boss that they don't like, uh, their old car that they drive, their spouse, uh, their hacked Twitter account, you know, whatever it is. I mean, we, oh, it's just my cross to bear. No, no, no. That's just the junk of life of living in a fallen and cursed world. Okay, Jesus said it pretty, pretty simply. He says this, uh, in this life, you will have trouble. That's, that's, that's true, right? That's just life is what that is. This isn't the kind of cross that Jesus is speaking of here. To the ones who, who first heard Jesus speak these words, um, it would have been a staggering realism of impending suffering, torture, public humiliation, shame, torment, and eventual death. Now, the cross in our culture, in some ways, has kind of lost some of its punch. So maybe a noose would be a better image to just kind of hear how these words would have landed. Take up your cross and follow me. It might have been something like, here, I'm tying this noose for you. Put it around your neck and let's go on a hike. That's more how it would have sounded. It wasn't take up your cross, here's a nice gold necklace, put it on. It's here's an instrument of death. Now pick that up and follow me. Death was much more visible in this day and age. Penalty for crime was not uh, behind closed doors. 
A criminal would have been forced to carry probably the crossbeam of their cross to their place of execution. While the whole town looked on, young and old. It was a one-way journey from which the person carrying that would not return. And this is the metaphor. Jesus says at the point of invitation, hey, if anyone would come and follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and carry it. And then he adds these words, daily. Now it's hard to believe that this is good news. The gospel means good news. What I'm sharing with you today, by the way, is the gospel. And if you're hearing this or understanding this for the first time, you're thinking that this is hard to believe. This is hard to believe that this is somehow the good news. I don't know if you've suffered for Jesus lately. I had a teacher in college that taught me this uh, in youth ministry. He said this, what you win kids with is what you win them to. So in other words, if all you ever do is throw parties and have lots of pizza and just draw kids with those tools, you will win them to that. And once you stop providing that, they will stop coming. If you want to win them to something substantial, do something substantial. I'm trying to see where he lifted this idea from. It's from Jesus Christ. Jesus performed miracles and did things, but as soon as the show went out, that wow, there's free bread going out of this basket. He would do something to kind of thin the crowds out. Luke 14 says that large crowds followed him. And instead of winning people's affections and looking to double the numbers and moving in that direction, Jesus often seems to alienate or even discourage people from following him further. And here's how he does it. He does it by offering them a true statement. He draws a line in the sand and he says, if, if you want to know what it's like to follow me, if you want to know what I'm teaching and what I'm really about, deny yourself, take up your cross, now step across this line and let's go. And often in the Gospels, what you see is this. Large crowds. And then it says, and many turned away from him that day. Hard teaching. He was talked to after church one day. Teacher, this is a hard saying. And many disciples couldn't accept it, and so they left him. Once you begin to really understand, not the cultural Jesus, but the real Jesus who makes demands on our lives, many don't stomach that. And they turn away, and they don't follow why does Jesus do this? Jesus does this because he loves people. Jesus didn't come to sell you something. Jesus didn't come to tickle your ears or play a game. Jesus came to love you. And if anyone's been in any kind of lasting relationship of any kind, you know that love sometimes hurts. The great life that Jesus offers isn't here and now. He was helping them set their heart on real treasure, that which lasts. It's the parent assuring their child whom they absolutely love. Hang on on this first part of the journey. It's going to be really bumpy and really scary, but just hold on through it. You're going to love the ending. And so the kid goes on to the roller coaster. The kid goes into the Jeep. The kid goes on to the journey and trust the parent. And the parent's telling them the scary news to prep them for what's coming. 
That's the picture of what Jesus is doing when he invites people to come and die. Lastly, he says these simple words, follow me. He preps them with these two things. It's an if-then clause. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and, uh, daily. And then he says this, follow me. I'll tell you what is really telling about Jesus. His lack of manipulation, his lack of pleading with people. He just authoritatively invites people to follow him. Mark 1 records this, Jesus saying this, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. He happened to be speaking to a group of fishermen. And what did they do? They left their nets and followed him. And their lives would never be the same. Something about the way that he issued that invitation had to woo these men away from their profession, away from all that they knew to put their trust and follow this teacher. What does it cost to become a Christian? On the one hand, nothing. It's a free gift of God. On the other hand, everything. What I just showed you is this. Jesus isn't looking for you to make a one-time statement of faith. He's asking for everything. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So it's free, but maybe not in the way that we sometimes think about. In practice, here's what this looks like. You follow the truth no matter where it leads. What you realize in Jesus is Jesus is the truth. So you're, you're following a person, not a philosophy, not an idea, not a manuscript. You're following a living person. And so to follow the truth wherever he may lead ends up in some of these scenarios in terms of suffering. It may lead to you're fired. It may lead to strained relationships which have the words, I hate you, attached. It may lead to inconvenience. It will probably lead to awkwardness. It may lead to scary situations, discomfort, loss, confusion. Read the Gospels. The first disciples of Jesus, I would say, experienced all of that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning going, wow, you're not a very good salesman, Dave. I mean, the question I would be asking and maybe many of you are, is this, is it worth it? Is it worth it to deny myself, take up my cross and follow, and have these things potentially be the result of it? That's a really fair question, and you're not the first person to ask the question. Mark chapter 10 records this. Peter, one of the disciples, said to him, we have left everything to follow you. Here's the undertext of that. Is this going to be worth it. The first disciples asked the same question. You're weighing your options. Is this worth it? Here's Jesus' reply. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. 
Let me invite the band to come on up right now. Jesus gives a condensed version of the Easter story in verse 22 of Luke 9. Then he summarizes the Christian life, and now he goes on to offer what is at stake. What are you weighing here? He says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, I don't know all of you, but all of us walked through those doors this morning from different walks of life. We have different dreams, opinions, likes, dislikes, personalities, temperaments, experiences. And while we all come from different walks of life, all of us, today or at some point in life, have or will ask some very core, common questions that are universal to human beings. Why am I here? Is this, meaning all that we see and touch and taste and smell, is this all that there is? Or is there something more? And perhaps the most personal is this. Am I valuable? Am I of worth? And who decides that? I want you to listen to this song. It's called Someone Worth Dying For. Sometimes the truth is difficult to believe. The invitation still stands. The invitation that Christ put out so long ago. The cross of Christ reveals your worth to God. At the price of His only Son, God paved the way for friendship with you. All that's left to do is to receive it, just like you would any other invitation. Now, another gloriously hard-to-believe statement of Jesus doubles as the hope of the world, and it's found in John 14. And it's what we're celebrating today. It's why this matters so much. Jesus' words, Because I live, you also will live. You see, the empty tomb, the victory over death and darkness, is not for Christ alone. By placing our faith in Him, we get in on this. And we get live also. Sometimes an invitation in a church is called an altar call. And you may have grown up in churches where there were 27 verses of just as I am being sung and one more verse. I'm not knocking any of that. But when you read a text like this, doesn't it seem like churches ought to do something like this? Hey, if you want to follow Christ, uh, we've given kickboards to everyone on the aisle You walk down this aisle, they're going to kind of beat on you, and you run this gauntlet down the middle, and you follow Christ. Maybe we should lose the soothing music, the soothing lighting, the 27 verses, and the pleading, and just say, the invitation is there. It's going to be costly. This life here and now may get worse, probably will get more difficult in a lot of ways. But Jesus is saying, Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Come and die so that you will live. 
There's an end game to all of this. And it's being issued and offered in love. So with all the authority of Jesus, we're not going to beat you coming down the aisle. Don't worry. That was just a random thought I had. But maybe we'll try it some Sunday. Maybe this morning you're ready to say, I don't have all the answers figured out, but I would like to receive this. I repent, which means I turn from my life and I give Jesus control, and I want to learn more about that. Congratulations, that's making the playoffs. I would just say, man, every day after that, as you follow Christ, becomes that that next most important step. Praise God for that. If that's you, I would personally love to talk to you. The tall guy is here. We have many in this room who would love to walk you through that decision, celebrate with you. They might even have some confetti in their pocket. I don't know. I didn't instruct that. Maybe today, though, is actually just about taking that first step. Uh, we, we began this church seven years ago with this idea of lowering the bar and raising the bar at the same time. Lowering the bar of what it takes to enter the conversation, what it takes to be a part of a church, what it takes to be welcomed in. But raising the bar in what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We don't want to soft sell that because Jesus didn't soft sell that. So lowering the bar and raising the bar at the same time comes out in this statement. We say around here a lot this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are means you don't need to fix yourself up to join us again next Sunday and start beginning this conversation and this this spiritual pursuit that you might be on. It may mean that you make a decision to trust and follow Christ, but you don't have the foggiest idea of what it means to be a Christian. You know that you don't have to turn sugary sweet. But what does it mean? Come as you are. Don't stay that way means this. To follow Jesus by definition means you aren't staying in the same place because Jesus is on the move. He's going to grow you and change you and lead you, and you're to follow him. That's what a disciple, a follower of Jesus does. I'm going to pray right now, and then we're going to get to turn our attention in a few moments to the baptistry. Do you bow your heads with me? If you're one who is uh, this morning just saying, I would like to follow Jesus Christ, I would like you to take an act of faith, and this morning, before you leave the building, come to the back table. I'd love to talk with you. Just learn your name so I could begin praying for you. If you're here this morning and you're saying, uh, wow, I'd like to learn more about this or I'd like to to just begin to pursue this, I would just invite you to come back next Sunday. We meet here every week to gather and worship and celebrate the reality that because Jesus lives, we also are alive. Jesus, thank you for meeting us here in this place. We're, We're aware this morning, God, that around the world, the Easter story will not go away. The truth of it remains, not just in the ideals or hearts and minds, but in the reality. And and so, Jesus, we, we celebrate you this morning as the risen Lord and Savior. And for many in this room who place their faith in you, we praise you and thank you for the grace that you've displayed to us. We thank you for the healing power, for the forgiveness that we've received. We even thank you, God, for the difficulty that we walk through today because we trust you this morning. For guests and wanderers and prodigals and antagonists, God, we just say thank you for bringing us here together under one roof. In Jesus' name.
Amen.